Welcome, everybody. It's another episode of No Driving Gloves. Amazingly, you've got Will, Derek, and John together again. Uh, I guess the holiday season's kind of slowed down our schedules a bit. And, well, of course, nobody's ready. Somebody's got their phone dinging. <laughs> Will! <laughs> Will! All right, my bad. And this week, we're going to do it a little bit different. Uh, I don't think anybody's really done anything. Did anybody do anything exciting? Or has it just been shop cleanup for Will? And um, I've just, like, traveled from coast to coast. Seem a foot recovery. Oh, yeah, you went down to the Cigar City Concours or something, didn't you? Or was that... Yeah, yeah, we went down to the Cigar City Concours, and then I had to fly to Michigan for a, a museum um, organization trip, and... Um, I've just been all from like South coast to North coast in a matter of like three days. So, yeah, my, my biggest thing I had to do was get all the leaves out of the pool from when I was gone to SEMA. <laughs> no, nobody volunteered yeah. to clean the pool. When I was gone. So, uh, yeah. And when it gets dark at five o'clock, there's, you know, there's not a whole lot you can, you can do, with, you know, <laughs> digging out pool leaves in the dark so that's what my weekend consisted of you, you and your dang pool <laughs> <laughs> but so this week we're going to jump right in and see where this goes it's going to be an interesting episode we're joined by tony watley who's a gentleman i heard on another podcast uh mark green formerly of Griot's garage and that does a little podcast called cars yeah i don't mind mentioning other podcasts and that and I heard Tony on there, oh, you were on, what, March or April of this year or something like that? Just kind of a fascinating life. He's about my age, and he's maneuvered a little bit, a uh, business coach, uh, entrepreneur. I think he's oil and gas business, but a car guy at heart. And somehow we got chatting this week. And he said, I'd like to just come on and talk cars. So we'll get a little bit of background on Tony here, let him fill us in and figure out kind of what he does for a day job. And then he can fill us in on, we'll figure out where it goes. I know he had some wonderful vacation pictures. He does hot rod power tours all the time in his Camaro or his Viper. And he's, uh, I think, GM guy at heart. But Tony, you want to say hi and fill the listeners in a little bit better than I can? Yeah, John, thank you for inviting me to the show, and I can't wait to meet your listeners. I, I've, I've had a, yeah, it, some summary, I'm a very much a car fanatic, and it's kind of cool to be sitting in a circle to, to have these kind of conversations with other people who obviously have a lot of passion for the automotive sphere, but my passion goes all the way back to childhood. I still remember sitting at the dining table watching my mom make dinner every night, and and while I was, should have been coloring in my coloring book, I was actually drawing cars in the open places of the book. So they started to notice that. And it's like, why are we buying you all these coloring books? Like, all you do is draw cars in all the blank places. And and my dad was working in the chemical plants at the time. And he actually started bringing home nut and bolt washers. So I had this little Ziploc bag full of different shapes and sizes of nuts and nut washers. And I would use those to trace the wheels and tires so I could draw my cars better. And so that started as an early thing. I was always, always fascinated with drawing cars that led to Hot Wheels and building model cars and and eventually that became full-size cars. And 
which led to me going to school to get an engineering degree because I wanted to design cars. And it's funny because, you know, Derek here in the Corvette Museum, that was that was like a dream job for me as a child, like uh, well, actually in high school to design the Camaro, be on the Camaro team and be the designer of the, the, the newest Camaros and the newest Corvettes was kind of like my career path that I wanted to do. But then I graduated and I realized that the oil industry pays a lot more than the car industry. So I decided to stay here in Houston. That's one thing I think the three of us sacrificed. I wanted to be an attorney, but I figured even if I was really good, I might be able to buy three or four cool cars. But if I restored them, I could drive them all. And so far, it's proved true. I can I've driven them all, but I don't make any money. (laughs) So yeah, that led on to me starting a few businesses in the automotive industry because I still had a lot of passion for it. And while I had a decent income, I I decided to start a website and it became ls1tech.com, which grew into the largest internet, basically the largest community forum for the General Motors fears. So we, we really focused on the Camaro, the Firebird and the Corvette. And just give your listeners an idea, we had at the time over 100,000 unique visitors per day. And even today, that website still exists. There's over 300,000 registered members. So that's something that we started just as a whim to pay for our free car. You know, like I have one partner in Chicago, John, and he said, uh, man, if we could create this website and make $500 a month extra, it would basically like you'd have a free Camaro and I'd have a free Firebird and that'd be pretty cool, right? And I was like, yeah, that's a good idea. So that's what we started. And it just basically grew because we treated it like a business. We just didn't ever treat it like a hobby. And that's how it grew. Maybe that's our mistake because uh, we're not making car payments with the podcast and <laughs> we we treat it like a hobby. <laughs> Yet there's always the possibility. You started LS1 Tech. What was that? If I'm remembering your previous interview, right? 2001 or so. So still kind of, I want to say infancy of the internet and that or... Was it a little bit before that? Ninety. I can't remember what year you said you started it. I'd, I'd say the forums really started taking off around 95, 96, but we did start it in 2001, actually this month. So this would be, I guess, yeah, 18 years. So happy birthday, LS1 Tech, you know, yeah, 17 years, really. So now I, was a, I remember being a CRX guy. That's kind of where Will met me. I was driving a CRX with a ZC swap, and I remember doing all the forums, the CRX discussion forum, and that. That's where you would have found me in the mid '90s. I guess I got out of it for a little bit of period of time, and then when I came back, forums changed so much. I've just—I don't know if I've <laughs> really hung out with forums. Yeah, we learned how to monetize them because we were realizing at some point that we were having a lot more. I guess a lot more distribution, a lot more eyeballs going to forums than there was even magazines. So we started really hurting the magazines, not intentionally, because we loved being on the magazines. I mean, I used to write and do a lot of articles for the, the the performance car magazines, but everybody was going to the internet for their information then. And the latest and greatest information was live right on the internet rather than waiting for a monthly subscription to come in. I remember that changeover, uh, was it, I want to say 96, I was in at Illinois Central College doing a modern automotive technology degree. And one of our assignments is we had to get on the Internet. We had to research because one of our professors swore up and down that the Internet was going to be something, and that's where a lot we would find our information. And that was, like I said, the mid-'90s, and um, I guess he was right. He's a pretty intelligent guy. 
Yeah, that, that was kind of funny. The first forum I actually joined was probably 95 and it was a billiards you know, shooting pool group because I was playing semi-pro nine ball and I was sponsored playing. Uh, I was in college at that time. And and I was like, you know, I want to join a, a, a forum that just has like a hobby thing. So I found one for pool to like look for play, people to play across the country and things like that or whoever was coming into Houston to challenge them, gamble a little bit. And so I was really creative and I used the, the uh, username Nineball, <laughs> which which became my online persona for the next 15 years because rather than trying to create a new username for every forum I joined, I just used the same one. <laughs> I, I've always used spare car for that for me. I stole it from my dad. He put that on the, the tag for his Viper when he got that years ago. And but the older I get, the smaller the world is. The neighbor we had when I was in grade school in a little town called Monmouth, Illinois, actually plays professional nine ball around around the world. Uh, he's written the book, um, Blue Book of Pool Cues. He's like a pool cue expert. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and he's a huge car guy. He recently bought an Audi R8, and somehow he... He put a picture up on Facebook the other day, and he said, well, I, I got the old Mazda out of the showroom and cleaned it up, and he's got a Mazda Cosmos you know, stuck in the corner. And I just remember always watching his family next door and Panteras and RX-7s and Audi, you know, 80, 1980-81 Audi Quattros when they really meant something. And just kind of that, to me, the little funny world. You can cross nine ball and you know, whoever knew it. Exactly. <laughs> Hey, you know, I, I actually quit playing after college. When I started making money, I decided I didn't like gambling it. Brad, I say Brad does pretty well with the nine ball stuff, and with his he's an author, and he's his uh, family owns uh, Simpson Limited, which is a gun shop in Galesburg, Illinois. And they're like the foremost knowledgeable people on uh, Lugers. They've owned the first Luger oh. ever created, and written some books on that too. So. He's not suffering either, but uh, I don't know if it's oil and gas money. You know, I, I, I've watched Dallas before. So, <laughs> guys, you're just kind of sitting there quiet. You have questions, or <laughs> you won't shut up, John. Hey, I'm good at that. You know, you got to push me out of the way. Oh, uh, I'm just I'm just sitting back, enjoying you know, listening to the conversation and learning a little bit about our our guest tonight. But I did I did hear him say something in that interview about when, when you mentioned that we're not making any money off the podcast yet. Um, he said, you never know. Um, maybe he can uh, help us turn this thing around and, um, you know, we can all start having some, you know, spare car payment money and get some more cars in our stables. That's it. You just got to build the audience, you know, however you need to, whether that's marketing or firing up your social media and just really promoting the show and getting more listeners and the way, I mean, I've got a mentor, his name's Lewis Howes, and he's got one of the top rated podcasts, like overall, and the guy's making multiple seven figures a year just on his podcast. So that's kind of the reason you can, you can use those as kind of your, your target and go, holy crap, there's people like they're becoming millionaires because of their podcasts. Absolutely. There's several. I would say that most of the top 10 podcasts on iTunes are definitely making millions. Like Joe Rogan, he's, he's clearing a couple million at least just from his podcast commercials. Yeah, we all can't get Elon Musk on smoking a joint though. So. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. But you know what? That, there you go. That's, that's what you got to do is attract the right people 
And you get people on there that have a pretty good following and they're going to promote the show for you. And it's all about collaboration. You know, I have my own podcast show as well. And I look for influencers at my level or a little bit above. And I try to get them as guests because I know that they're going to get a little bit of my crowd. I'm going to get a little bit of theirs. And there's no scarcity mindset because we're both going to level up a little bit and a little bit for each episode we we make. So that's really the key. Like everybody that's got the top level ranked shows, they've They've collaborated their way up to that top level. It's all about networking. It's like I said, there's things you learn in life and it's networking and asking and talking to people. And if you want to mention the name of your podcast and that we have no rules or anything on advertising or whatever. So if you want to mention that and see if any of our listeners go your way, we do respectable numbers. If you go by Lipson, you know, we're we're not quite in the top fifty percent of podcasts, but we're really close. And I'm 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 proud for none of us are social media savvy. I spend a lot of time working on it, but Facebook changes everything. There you go. Hey, hey, top 50% is good because there are like millions of podcasts out there. So that's really good to to actually get past all those. And I I started it about two months ago and I've got about 27 episodes uh, recorded and 17 at this time uh, released. But it's basically an entrepreneurship mindset, health and wealth, relationships, anything that's going to be catering to business owners. I really go after the small business owners because that's the, the level of coaching that I do as I help small business owners level up their their enterprise to get to the next level, wherever that's uh, identifying the inefficiencies in their processes and finding things where they can improve, getting them back, you know, better marketing and branding, especially online and just helping them scale. That's, that's what I have a lot of passion for. So the last year and a half, I've kind of stepped away from the oil and gas career. And really, I have a, an automotive retail business that I've had for about 12 years now. And then I just do the one-on-one coaching and I'm building this brand. I started doing more public speaking and I wrote the book. So, um, yeah, it's just it's interesting. I'm, I'm not afraid to evolve. Whenever I have a passion for something, I'm, a, I'm, not, I'm never afraid to just go all in and just chase that. I think I've said to you on Facebook uh, before in one of our conversations, I really can't wait for the audio book. I'm about three, four chapters into the digital book, but I just, I just never have time to read. I spend all my time in a car or, you know, with at least headphones on listening to stuff. And I just, I'm able to consume books really fast and podcasts really fast that way. But reading in my eyes and my age, I just, I don't get around to that anymore. So I'm looking forward to the audio book, which I'm going to say it's called Side Hustle Millionaire. And it's kind of about doing that little side hustle thing and what you've got to do to I think you make a good point. You, hopefully, I'm not confusing you with somebody, but at one point, you know, you had your day job and you made decent money, but your side job, you were only doing two or three hours a week and made decent money. So why give up the day job? And it's kind of that mindset. You just do whatever you need to do and, I guess, set goals and try to achieve them. Exactly. That's that's what I say is the try to make as much money as you can in, a, in the most efficient manner as possible. I don't believe in just like busting your ass and like trying to kill yourself to make a book. And this digital world, there's a lot of different ways to make money compared to what we grew up in when you just thought you were trading dollars per hours. That's kind of the old mindset. And nowadays with the digital type businesses and businesses that you can multiply your time, you can be omnipresent and make money even when you're sleeping or sitting on the commode reading my book. <laughs> <laughs> or you could you could be making money at all all hours of the night, and just that's the incredible things of the technology nowadays is having products that are digital or whatnot that can be copy pasted essentially at no manufacturing cost, shipped across wires on the internet at basically no shipping cost. You know these are these are the kind of things that we have like any kind of recurrent business model like LS1 Tech. 
we earned all the revenue from advertising, obviously. So to give you an example, we were making about $40,000 profit per month on that website when we were running it for a few years. And that's how we were able to sell it for multiple seven figures on the exit plan. And hence the name Side Hustle Millionaire. That's basically my story. You also presently run a online automotive business, don't you? We'll start getting this more to the car stuff and getting the other guys involved there. I'm all fascinated about this side hustle stuff. And that's hence one reason for the podcast. See, I I am too. I I would like to talk with Tony about that for the whole thing. But, you know, the, the whole reason Tony came on our podcast was to talk cars, you know, (laughs) maybe there'll be a, a a later date where we can we can really pick Tony's brain about small businesses and making them more profitable and and essentially what he just said was my business <laughs> I, I sell I sell man hours you know and, mm-hmm. and building hot rods and you know in this day of time you know that's uh yeah I mean you know somebody's got to do it it might as well be me right but uh that's right you know it's uh but you're totally right you know, I mean, selling hours is tough nowadays and it's the, the hot rod industry's a, as far as the side that I'm on, owning a hot rod shop, it's a, it's a very, very tough business to make good money at. It's very fun. It's very rewarding. And, you, you know, it, it's essentially hanging out. If, if you like the guys you work with, it's essentially hanging out with your friends and building cool stuff all day, but it's just, it's not a very high level profit margin in it. Definitely. I mean, I actually, I'd say half the clients I work with are shop owners to their performance shop or restoration shop. And I get it, man. I've, I've built cars from the ground up myself. So I kind of have a really good knowledge of what's all involved in the scheduling and the parts and how everything works and what the bottlenecks are and paint shop jail and all these kind of things. And <laughs> it's uh, a, <laughs> Cars, cars like your building will like at the highest levels. Yeah. Those can be like really stinkers on the, on the profit margin. Cause a lot of times builders want to add a little bit more custom features. They spend a lot more time on those small details that get noticed in a big show, but they don't get paid for that. They're not getting compensated for that extra work that they're putting in to make this masterpiece where the highest, the highest profit margin shops out there tend to be the ones that just focus on really simple crap. Like, Come in, bolt on an exhaust, put on an airbox lid, change out the wheels, maybe put some nice rotors on the car and send it out the door because they're getting a yep. get paid based on just completing a job like inst- like this over and over and over process rather than yeah. tying up a bunch of man hours into a project. That's right. We 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 do a lot better doing vintage air installs. Um, we sell a, a good bit of wheels too, like your um your your website that you have. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're dealers for a lot of the same companies. Matter of fact, you know, that, that's, that's where we make a lot more money at. It's, it's the, it's the 40 hour jobs, not the, uh, 3000 hour jobs that you yeah. do really well on. And, uh, but you know, with, with my mindset, the way I'm wired, um, it, it's, it's more of, uh, creating a piece of art versus, you know, yes, it's a car and, and then that's ultimately my passion since I was, you know, since I could walk, it, it, it is a car, but it's more about the design and making something unique and different that is going to make people walk around it and go, holy cow, I wish I would have thought of that or, 
You know, my, one of my favorite things to say that I get told all the time is, you know, I don't like that body style of car, but man, I like that one. To me, to me, that's, yeah, it don't pay the bills, but it's worth a lot just to hear that come out of, you know, people's mouth. Absolutely. I, I, I totally, you, you guys are, you guys are talking a little, you guys are talking a language I, I don't understand because I, <laughs> I come from the nonprofit world here. I just don't make any money. And <laughs> I fight with budgets day in and day out. But it, it's actually, I'm, I'm very interested because I've always kind of thought about doing, you know, and I have a lot of friends that have gone from the nonprofit world to opening their own shop or something like that. I've got a good friend back in Michigan that, you know, he, he left the nonprofit he was in and now he's doing you know, a mechanical restoration, just general maintenance on early brass era, horseless carriage, you know, classic era automobiles, kind of something I've always thought of. Of course, you know, I, my kind of area of expertise or passion and all that is, is kind of that same era, but I also have done a lot with other early engines in other early machinery, a lot of early clocks. Uh, if these two guys, you know, John and Will know I'm a, I'm a clock collector. Um, I work on early clocks, stuff like that. Always had this idea that maybe I could turn that into something, but I'm, I'm one of those people that my mindset is in the nonprofit world. And every time I think about, oh, I'm going to, you know, open this great business, I'm going to, you know, help people with their cars or their cool old machinery. You do that. I don't even, where, where do you start? I don't, what do you mean I can't have a zero budget and break even every so year? So is, is the nonprofit, is it is it because you like the charity aspect or is it because you just don't like making money? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean is, I it, is, it, is it the I philanthropy thing or is it you're just like, hey, I'm, we're just going <laughs> to break even? I mean, what, what, what's what's the deciding factor there? I've just... I have always had a passion for, well, actually the funny thing is when I was in high school, my whole career path was totally different. I was, I was actually chemistry guy, sciences. Um, I've actually got about five years of chemistry behind me between high school and college. And the plan was to go into the FBI, believe it or not. I was, I was already talking to the FBI and, and setting up to go to Quantico and basically backed out. I've always had a passion for uh, history. I guess teaching people about, I, I find the development of technology and how it's impacted our lives uh, very interesting. And I enjoy curating that and, and educating people in that. And of course, the way you do that is, you know, either be a teacher at a university or a school, which are basically nonprofits or go work at a museum and, and it's a nonprofit and you don't make a lot of money. So I, I guess I'm just messed up in the head. Is, is what that's, uh, telling everyone, you know, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what my mindset, you know, why I can't break that barrier and, and get into that, you know, other world. I, I don't know if I'm just so ingrained in being that passionate about that part of my life um, or, you know, and, and kind of doing that, that I'm just like, yeah, okay, I'll just stick with this and, and be broke forever. So, so I actually have a response because as you know, there's a lot of, uh, I guess, especially with the politics and media out there, we don't have to go into that subject, but you know, they're trying to do all these type of financial spectrum division of people. You know, they got the poverty class, middle-class, upper-class. You always hear about these things on the news and, and you'll find that sometimes the, 
the poverty class will kind of look at the affluent people and go, oh, you guys must be bad people and you got all this money and you should donate it and this, that. So you, we've all heard that kind of stuff, right? Here's the thing. When people tell you like, hey, uh, I don't I don't believe in making money because, you know, this and that. Well, the, the right answer to that that I give to them is like, hey, it's your duty to earn as much as your potential because what you decide to do with that is up to you. If you want to be a bigger ph- philanthropist, create your own museum, donate to the kids, go buy a luxury yacht, whatever you want to do. I don't care because that's your money, but it's really your duty to earn to your potential to be able to do whatever you want to have that option. So when you start to put it in that perspective, you're like, holy crap, man, I maybe I should be earning more because then I could donate more. So you can always do more when you live in abundance than when you don't have it. See what I mean? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So that's, that's how I tend to answer those questions about the nonprofit. Like don't be ashamed are afraid to earn the money because it's your potential to do that. But what you do with it is going to decide if you're you know, living to your, your values or not. Yeah. 100, 100% agree. Yeah. And I just, like Will said, this is, this is all not talking about cars, yeah. but you know, you know, it, it's just an interesting topic and I'm, I'm, I'm actually very interested in kind of, you know, listening to your podcast now and, and kind of hearing, hearing that, that whole side of thing. It's, it's, it's interesting. Honestly, while you were talking about your passions of teaching people and the intricacies and the old world technology versus new, what was resonating in my mind at that moment was saying that you need to have a YouTube channel to really cover these kind of details and educate people on that stuff on video. More Mondays. I, I was <laughs> just going to say, he needs to look up more Mondays. I'm not. I'm not sure what that is. Of course, it's it's done through the it's done through the National Corvette Museum. Um, every it's, sometimes it's every other Monday. Sometimes we go a little longer. Sometimes it's every Monday. I do a, a quick Facebook video. It goes up on YouTube as well, called More Mondays, and uh, it's it's about the history of Corvette and some of the things we have hidden in the museum. Stories about Corvette history, and once in a while, if I'm traveling to another museum, I'll do a a segment on something at another museum. Uh, yeah, we put it out there for our, you know, the people that follow the Corvette Museum on Facebook and YouTube and uh, just give them little tidbits of information, mainly to try to get them interested in coming to the museum to learn more. So well, that's, that's cool for the museum, but that's not cool for you. <laughs> you know, you got to build your personal brand. Maybe like you could do when it talks about clocks and all the other, you know, trinkets and cool, like history things that you have a lot of passion for other than just Corvettes. I mean, you've obviously you already have that experience making those videos. Maybe you make your own you know, brand video that has kind of the same format, but just covering the things that you want to share, whatever that might be. I already like this guy. I'm, I'm, I'm really liking this guy. Can we, you know what, can, can we just add him to one, being one of our <laughs> podcast hosts? I mean, weekly basis. Yeah. I'm always thinking about how to monetize things. That's just how my brain works. I was, I was at a concert with my girlfriend on uh Friday night, and I had no clue who Dawes was or anything, knew, knew a couple songs because she played them. And what I'm doing is I'm sitting there, and I finally go, so what do these tickets cost? And she told me, and I said, well, there's a thousand people in this room, and you figure, okay, I wonder what their take is, and then the t-shirt take, and then the bar sales, and trying to figure out the actual income for that one show. And why I don't think I do it at the same level you do, Tony, I... I'm always playing that numbers game and always looking at what I can do, but absolutely scalability. Like I always think in multiples and if I, like if you can get away from the dollar per hour model of, of yourself, like a lot of people set their self worth based on what they get paid per hour. 
and they think, oh, you know, I'm a mechanic. I make $25 an hour. Like that's all I'm worth. And, and you know, engineer, like I make $50 an hour. That's, that's, that's what I'm worth. But it's just not true because we only have the same, we have a finite amount of hours per day to work generally eight to 12 hours for most people. And that's, that's going to set an upper limit based on what you can earn. So if you start thinking about what value you can create to this world that can scale, that's where you're going to make the real money. That's when you own the companies and you have employees working and creating some kind of value to add to this world. You're getting paid off of those people and everything just scales. But now with digital products and digital businesses, you don't need a storefront. I mean, the you know, Will, you mentioned the the online wheel retail company. I've had that 12 years and I still make sales even when I'm traveling in Europe. So the other, like a month ago, I was in Spain sitting on a cruise ship and here I'm getting like, you know, thousand dollars a day, like profit from sailing things online. So it's, I like to create businesses where I don't have to be somewhere on time. I can show up when I want to. I can, you know, I can do one-on-one coaching sitting in a cafe somewhere in Europe to a person in Hawaii. It's just, it just, uh, I like to have this flexibility in my time. As I get older, I just want to have more flexibility and more time control rather than chasing the dollar and trading dollars for hours. As I've gotten older, I've found it's not necessarily what I make. It's the what the the time and the quality of time. So I think think we all eventually reach that point. We just reach it too late, and so so many of us get into a nine to five grind and become debt slaves of term, you know, you have, oh, I got a car payment and a mortgage. And so I, I can't take that risk. And uh, some things changed for me this year where I'm kind of able to take the, those risks a little bit. So I'm venturing off. And, and that's one reason I had you, you know, jumped at the chance when I think you jokingly said something about, oh, car pay podcast, I'd love to be on it, is I figured some of your motivational stuff could inspire some of our listeners. I didn't necessarily think you would inspire our hosts, <laughs> but, but it worked. But I'm looking at my clock here, and we've chatted with you about 30 minutes about your job. Now let's talk about, you wanted to come on and, like Will said, talk about cars. You started with a Camaro, and you you know did a Viper, and if I remember right, one of your early cars was a like an anniversary Trans Am or something. And you direct the conversation. Where do you want to go on cars? Like I said, we're, we're pretty good. Seat of the pants. We can cover anything and talk about anything or at least BS our way around it. So, Okay. I'd say that I'll start back when I was 14 and I was out there mowing yards in the neighborhood. And I grew up lower middle class, small home. Was probably, I mean, that home was probably a thousand square foot to give you an idea. My parents, you know, were blue collar. My mom worked as a cafeteria lady in the in the public school system her entire career. My dad was working out in the chemical plants, started out as a pipe fitter, superintendent eventually. And they just taught me that if I wanted something, I gotta go figure it out. The, the, we didn't have handouts. We didn't have allowance back then. It's just like, get out there and go do something. So for me, it was pushing the lawnmower around, knocking on doors of any house that had tall grass and asking if I can mow the yard for 10 bucks. And if they told me no, I said, can I wash your car for five bucks? And that's just how I made my money on the summer times and in the evenings. And I ended up buying my first car for 1200 bucks, which is just a rusted piece of crap, 1969 Camaro, which honestly, this was like 1980, that'd be around 87 when I bought it. So it really wasn't that special of a car back then because it was just an old Camaro. Like in 87, it was just a used Camaro, you know, and it was so rusty. You could reach through the quarter panel and like into the trunk. So it was pretty bad. The car didn't run or drive, and my dad, you know, he's very mechanically inclined. We we spent an entire year picking that thing apart and just fixing it. I was I was a, I became a very good Bondo artiste 
I could I could really mold some bondas like those those creases on the '69 Camaro fenders, man. I got those down like, and then you use the uh, the chrome trim to like hold it up in place. Man, I made some really good bondo mud pie like cars back then, and and that's that's all I could afford, you know. Then my first job at 15 was working at McDonald's, and every dollar I made was either spent on my girlfriend or that car. I have I have an affinity for 1969 Camaros. It's my my favorite car just for those emotional attachments. But I've owned several first gen Camaros. I did one of the very first LS swap first gens, which are like a dime a dozen nowadays. You, you know, you can't swing a cat at a car show without hitting an LS swap first gen. But I was like one of the first, I think, five people to do one back in must have been 2003 when people were just starting to figure out you could pull those engines out and put them in old cars. That's kind of the thing. Like no matter what cars I have or what I can afford, I always got a first gen Camaro and I still have a 69 Camaro convertible out there in the shop right now. So that's just, uh, that's my, my passion is those. I've owned several muscle cars along the way. I've had probably over 50 different cars that I've built for, for the magazines and such. Uh, I had a lot of sponsors working with LS1 Tech and GM High Tech Performance. Did a lot of articles for Super Chevy and Chevy High Performance, different magazines. I was doing a lot of photojournalism back then. That was a side hustle on its own. You know, get paid thousand dollars an article, and you got another one that comes out every month. That's that's a pretty good little side money for something that you enjoy doing. I, I like taking photos and looking at cool cars and meeting people that own these cool cars. And it's just, uh, yeah, I'm just a car fanatic. When I wake up in the morning, I think about cars. And and any any time I'm doing anything, I'm thinking about cars. If I'm working, I'm I'm, I'm thinking about cars. I'm thinking about what, what I'm going to buy next, what I'm going to drive next, what can I sell to buy the next one. You know, you're always having these these games going on in your head. So it's just it's really interesting when you meet other car guys. It's like we get along instantly because we're all thinking like that. So what what's your daily driver right now? Well, since I work at home, I would say I, I actually split the duty. I've I've got a, a white Viper TA that I drive around, and I and I've also got a the '69 Camaro convertible. I just kind of drive them around. I, I put. That Viper's got 19,000 miles on it now since it was new. And the Camaro I built two years ago, and it's got, I think, 12,000 miles on it now. So I just drive them, man. That's the, the, the Camaro's the orange convertible? Correct. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody looks at that car and like, you actually drive this around? Cause I mean, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a, it's about, it's not a, I mean, it's not a car like you would build. I mean, it's, it's about $200,000 budget to give your, to listeners an idea what that car build is. Did you do the power tour last year? Or no, it was this year. This year. Did you do the power tour this yeah, year? Yeah, I made it halfway and it, it something, uh, the computer went bad in South Carolina. So we only made it halfway. I had to get towed back. Okay. Did um, did you take the, the, the rural route or did you take the interstate from Chattanooga to um, Birmingham? Since I've done power tours so often, I usually just take the interstates. So it's, I think, I, I think this is like 14 years that I've been on power tour and yeah. we usually just try to get to the next venue so we can kind of relax a bit, you know, the, uh, the rural route come right in front of our shop this year. Hmm. And, uh, we had a, we had our big trailer set up and there was a ton of people stopped. It was, it was pretty cool. cool. Pretty, you- neat, pretty neat deal. So you live out in some pretty country because I know that area. It's it's beautiful out there. Yeah, other than right now, and it's wet and rainy and cold. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, the rolling hills in North Alabama is a, it's a pretty place. Yep, yep. So yeah, that's I, that would have been that would have been my third long haul in the car, and 
they, uh, the computer went bad. We, we it basically all the sensors on the top half of the engine let, like lost their ground signal, and those all passed to the computers, so basically couldn't do anything. Yeah, there ain't much you can do about that. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> so I got to ask Tony, is that the are the are those the only two cars in in the stable right now, or do you have some other cars that you know you just kind of collect and and have sitting around uh, we've got a new camaro out there and and i just had a, a 70 chevelle ss 454 that i've had for 10 years and i sold that to a buddy of mine a couple of weeks ago because he's been pounding me about it and i've been thinking about getting something else possibly and i've got another viper out there an 06 blue with white stripes that's got about 1300 at the wheels nice nice there was something i was going to say about that because you're definitely an advocate for drive them or something drive them and not letting them sit, but I can't remember. There was something that went back to Mark's podcast that may, it may have been my, the story of my granddad, what he told me on his deathbed, but I've, I'll share that story with your listeners. Cause it's a good story. And I think all car people need to hear it, but my granddad, he loved cars himself. He was, he, he, you know, grew, you know, grew up in the, I guess he, when he was 18, it was like the world war two era. So you can kind of get the idea of what his age was. And, you know, he, so he had like the 55 Chevys and the 57 Chevys and all these cool cars, but he never modified them because he was one of those people that was like, oh, I got to keep it in good condition and save it for the next guy. And we all have friends like that. And we hear that stuff. And I'm like, man. So when he was getting older and, you know, he, he had uh, asbestosis and, you know, he knew we all knew he was going to pass at some point. He just really couldn't breathe very well. And, you know, he, he told me, he's like, Tony, whenever you decide like to start doing stuff with cars like don't be afraid to modify them don't be afraid to enjoy them but go enjoy them because like because while i'm laying here I, i'm thinking about all the cars i've owned in my life that i did not enjoy because i was trying to keep them too pretty and like save them for the next person and because i wish i could go like down the drag strip in that 55 chevy right now that i never did so he had all these regrets wrapped in up into the car so he had pride in ownership but not pride in usership so there's so many people out there that have that same philosophy. I mean, you see all these exotics and stuff that, that get traded in with like 200 miles on them. I was like, dude, that would be like the first couple of hours of me owning one of those cars, <laughs> you know? So use them, use them and, and race them. Like I, I take that, that Viper TA, I've had it on the track. I've had it at the drag strip, drove it on power tour twice. I drove it home, you know, from, from Michigan and just, just, you know, just drive the cars, enjoy those. Cause that's one thing you don't want to ever have to, to be on your death, but go, man, I just did not enjoy that car. And I wish I would have, that would suck. I see so much car stuff and I get confused. Did you not have pictures of your car earlier this year, driving it in the snow, your white Viper? <laughs> yes. Yeah. We actually were driving the Viper. I live in Houston, Texas, and we were driving it to Las Vegas for a Viper convention like they do every other year. And as we were going through uh, New Mexico, as the elevation starts to get really high, we got up there as Flagstaff and it was like a whiteout. It was like coming down, like, holy crap. And here I am on Toyota R888R, like, you know, road course tires. And yeah, it's, it, it's snowing and we just basically had to drive through it. And, and honestly, the car did pretty well in snow. The, the new Vipers have traction control systems and you know, I just put it in rain mode and it actually had less, uh, less hydroplaning and snow than it did on rain. <laughs> <laughs> wow yeah that's a that's a pretty good testament to the to the to the viper right there yeah yeah it worked really well i mean uh the good thing about snow is it kind of blows off the road you know but the rain just stays on the, it, it was like dry it was so cold it was like dry snow 
Snow's usually not bad. It's always the ice that accompanies it. But, exactly. You know, no nobody ever thinks of, thinks about that. And there's a kind of the famous picture picture I see quite often of the Ferrari F forty under three <laughs> or four inches of snow. And one thing I always remember, I, I went to every Formula One race at Indianapolis when they were there uh, this last time around. And every year, and I don't know whose car it was, there was always a Ferrari F40 parked in front of the uh, museum. And you look in it, and it's got McDonald's wrappers and soda cans thrown on the passenger <laughs> floor. And you go, that's what you got to do with it. You know, who cares? You know, it's a Ferrari. You're enjoying it. You drive it. It it doesn't do you any good. It's saving it for the next guy. Why? I even had that thought pro- process go through my head today. I was talking to somebody about my SHO, and you know, and I said it's a seventeen. It's not the exciting first gen ones or anything. And he goes, "Oh, there's some serious power there." And it got me thinking. You know, for a few hundred bucks, not much money, I could bump that from four hundred to six hundred horsepower and have a you know a fun daily driver type car. But I don't know. I'm a slave to the warranty, I guess. But <laughs> it's. You know, you kind of got me thinking again. Uh, girlfriend might kill me if I stay up late looking at some uh, ECU kits for that car. That's it, man. I, it, it, now, I've, I've got to, I've got to say that uh, you know this doesn't just apply to um, to more modern vehicles either, because I've been around antique cars for a long time and involved in some different antique car groups, and yeah, I've been on a number of, of tours, uh, model T tours, just antique, you know, brass and gas tours, things like that. And, uh, the groups I, I tend to run around with, you know, we take the antique cars, the model T's, all these cars down dirt roads. Um, you know, we've been on fire trails in the national forests of Northern Michigan. Just, I've, I've got pictures of me. My beard is just white, full of dust from the roads we were driving down. We've, we've gotten questions before you know we'd stop at like a one of the you know national park uh, visitor centers or something after we'd been running around and the the park rangers are always just like why would you drive those cars on those kind of roads what's wrong with you <laughs> it's like well what kind of roads do you think they were built for we're, oh. we're trying to actually experience what these cars were made for and that's what it's about actually getting cars out whether they're antique or classics or brand new cars and experiencing the automobile. I mean, that's, to me, that's what cars are for, you know, drive them, experience them, um, all of that. So, I mean, I think it's a great philosophy. Absolutely, man. I, that's, I'm smiling really big right now. Cause I can imagine just jumping in a, a model T and just going down some pothole, like terrible dirt road, because that's what they had back then, man. There were horse trails that they drove on. Oh, it's it's absolutely fantastic. If you ever get the chance to, you know, go do one of those tours with somebody, I absolutely say do it. It is it is an absolute blast. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. And like on our uh if you go read our kind of our motto on our website, yeah, we build extremely expensive cars, but they're not they're not one to you know, one to one scale models. You know, everything we build here you can get out and drive and enjoy and 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 no you're not going to take like that dart we built and use it as a daily driver but you know it's been on the drag strip it's been on the autocross um it's cut donuts in parking lots you know and and you know people think you're crazy for you know taking a car like that and building it for the detroit auto rum and getting a grade eight but you know after that <laughs> it's it's a car yep 
You know, that's that's what you're supposed to do with it. Um, you, you won the big award. Now go out and enjoy it. Yes, you got a lot of money in it, but you, you got what you said after already in your hands. Go enjoy it. You know, it, it's not going to bring nowhere near what you got in it anyway. So have fun with it. Drive it. Enjoy it. Yeah, it's, it, it kind of goes back to the sunk cost fallacy. Now, you've already spent the money. You're not going to get the money back, so you might as well go have fun with it. <laughs> That's right. That is exactly right. And, uh, and you know, believe it or not, a lot of the guys that we build cars for, that's, you know, that's what they do. And then some of them just, you know, they want them to sit in their garage and their buddies come over and stand around it and smoke cigars and drink beer and, and, uh, and just look at them. So four flat tires, they don't care. It just, it looks pretty sitting there. That's all they want to do. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a good conversation when people come over and they see a car that's built like that and it's got like little rock chips on it and like maybe a little scratch here and there. And they're like, oh, look, it's got a flaw. You're like, I know, because I drove it across the country a few times. That sounds a whole lot more fun that's, than saying, well, I don't ever drive it. How did it get this dust on it? You know, and that's, so that's right. the fact that you can jump that's into right. an expensive, like custom built car and just go haul it across the country, like, Man, that's way better bragging rights than sitting there under a car cover. That's that's right. We were uh, in Bowling Green, and we had the dart there. And there was a guy who had a Bentley Continental GT, mm-hmm. and uh, we were hot lapping him on the drag strip. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so it, it was the dart and a Bentley Continental GT out there just giving it hail. I mean, as hard as we could go, and uh, that that was pretty fun you know, taking that car and doing that with it. And, uh, cause it's fast. It's not, you know, it's got a, you know, a 392 cubic inch light model supercharged Hemi with a six speed. I mean, it'll, it'll, it'll flat get on down the road if you want it to. I've got a friend in the, uh, local quote, exotic car club. We get together most Saturdays for lunch and he sends out his email and gives the the Lambo weather report and if it's going to rain or something, he always says, drive the rain car. And that usually means everybody drives their Corvettes. And he's taken to, well, everybody drives their Corvettes. So he stopped driving his Corvettes. And now he uses his Ferrari 488 as his rain car. So it's just, it's nice to see somebody actually will use the car a little bit. He doesn't take some of his nicer stuff out in the rain. But just to see that, you know, something like that, again, being used and, being enjoyed. Yeah, I don't. I, you know, I, I also, I've, I've got to jump in because I love this philosophy. Because as as a curator at a museum, no matter what museum I've been at, uh, you know, and and what position I've been in, you know, I'm I'm of the 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 opinion, and I, and I'll get calls or emails from people about, you know, uh, oh, I've got a Corvette, and I'm wondering if you want it. Best example is uh, earlier this year had a gentleman, you know, reach out to us. And I think you, we talked about it on the show and, and you might've even read about it on a couple different articles, but he called up and said, Hey, I, I don't know if you, if you know about this car, but I've, I've got a 2000 Corvette and I've, I've driven it 773,000 miles, still got the original engine in it. It's on its second transmission. And it's like, I was hoping to make it to a million miles on it. And I just don't think it's going to happen. I didn't know if you guys might want the car for the collection. It's it's not really pretty. He's like the seats torn, the you know clear coat starting to bubble in some spots and and peel a little bit. And 
I said, we'll take it <laughs> because, you know, people call me up and they're like, you know, the car is not perfect. I said, well, great. That's exactly what I want for the museum because the car is a machine. It is built just like a washing machine, a dryer, a dishwasher, whatever you want to compare it to. It's meant to be used. It's meant to be a machine that we use to go from point A to point B. And guess what? When you're doing that, it's getting nicked. It's getting scratched. It's getting dented. It's getting whatever. And that's the story of that machine to be able the visitors to be able to see that. It just like Tony just said, you know, they come over and they see the, you know, in the garage, the, you know, the Ferrari or the, the Bentley or whatever with, paint chips and scratches and the guys like, yeah, I drove it across the country. That's why it's like that. That's the point. You know, that's, that's what these things are built for. You know, yeah, it's great to have a, a pristine example with 20 miles on it in the museum. So people can look and see what it looked like the moment it rolled off the assembly line, but we got to have the other example because that's the story of the automobile. That's the whole reason it was built. Man, I got a good analogy for that. Everybody look down at your hands and look at all the scars that you got all over your hands. Would you rather be that old man that's laying, laying in, would you would you rather be that guy that just is like on his deathbed that's not got a scar on his body? Because that means that guy hasn't lived. He doesn't have any stories to tell. But if I'm I'm covered with scars head to toe from all the crap I've done, but every one of them I can remember like what I did. <laughs> a lot of times it was like doing stupid <laughs> shit, but <laughs> it's a... Uh, here, here's a story that you can see with each scar. And that's kind of like when you see these little nicks and, and, and damages on a car, you kind of remember things. And this scar, I should have probably done three years for this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This, this one I did three years for. <laughs> but you covered it, you covered it up with a tattoo or something though, right? <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. You can't see it now. Yeah, it's, um... it's Unfortunately, it's usually the scars on the other guy's body that I do the time. <laughs> so there you go, man. They, oh, the, that, the, the, the flaws tell a story. Doing your three years. Oh. No. <laughs> uh... Well, I had I to think, look up. I had to look up that dart you kept mentioning because I remember seeing it. But what I remember now, other than the bright green color, was the headlights. The headlight details what I, I remember really standing out for me. Yeah, yeah, the headlights on that thing are pretty, pretty cool. Yeah, with the integrated uh, turn signals. Yep, and then the 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 LED lights in the bottom are just like an all time running light. Cool car. Yeah, it was it was a fun car to build. I've been fortunate enough to swing by Will's shop a few times, and I was there during the dart build, and he was showing me some of the the little details, and it's amazing. If we all, we keep always talking about just doing an episode on the dart, but I think that's probably more of a YouTube thing, just because of the you know hundreds of little modifications on it that you never know that are there. And uh, you were at SEMA this year too, or Tony? Uh, I wasn't, but Will was in his '42 Chevy, which I think he alluded to earlier in the show without saying it. A lot of people think it's a god-awful, ugly truck to begin with. And then what he managed to do with that 42 Chevy and won the GM Design Award, I think that's what it was called, uh, at SEMA. It's just these little things, and I don't know if it's in... My girlfriend even asked, and I don't know the answer to the question. Answer it, Will. Is it you? Is it your artist? Is it your customer? Where do those designs come from? Or is it a combination of you looking at the artist's drawing or... On on that particular truck and the dart, 
99% of the, the ideas and stuff as far as moving the sheet metal around and changing body lines and chopping tops and making rear fenders or whatever all comes from right here at Big Oak Garage. You know, I had, um, I had Brian Stupski draw up the dart. You know, he helped me a little bit with the interior design. Uh, the taillight panel is 100% his baby on that car. I gave him free reign to do what he wanted to do. Now we had already, you know, the deck lid on those cars factory went down to the bumper and I wanted to, you know, make the lid more like a, more like a Camaro where, you know, that whole back panel, we had something there to do, do something with and not have, not have it split for the, uh, for the deck lid. And uh, so I kind of gave him free reign on that. And, you know, that's what he came up with, which is absolutely stunning. It cost a lot of money. And, but when Willie, the guy that owns the car, he was actually at the shop when we put it in the car for the first time. And, and he goes, well, that was worth every penny that I spent. It's like a piece of jewelry on the back of that car. But most, most of the stuff comes from, from me most of the time. And then uh, the guys in the shop really, you know, they can take something and just run with it too. So I've got a bunch of talented guys. It's just one of those things that car, car will talk to you. You know, it'll tell you, it'll tell you what it needs. You know, if, uh, it, you know, just like the rear fenders on the blue truck, I mean, the factory 42 fenders, it looks like they, they called Dodge and Chevrolet was short of fenders and said, Hey, send us some fenders. <laughs> they just didn't match the truck at all. And, you know, and that was one of the things that was just a total eyesore on that truck. <laughs> and so we, we just elected to make rear fenders that had the same highlight lines as the front fenders, you know, and it, it wasn't a, it wasn't a hard decision to make. It was just like, yeah, those are ugly. Let's make some that look cool. Yeah. So I, I did see the truck at SEMA, but I don't know that truck body style well enough to know the differences that you changed on it. <laughs> that's because every other one's ugly yeah yeah you, you never you know, see you never see them like the ugly ones even restored <laughs> so surprisingly there wasn't really a whole lot of major stuff changed on that truck it was just very minor detailed stuff to just make the body of the truck flow better and and have a little more art deco feel. Hmm. Um, I mean, the, the grill in that truck just screams art deco. And, um, so we just kind of took that and ran with it and, um, and just really smoothed everything up, but left, left enough of the originality of the truck there. So everybody knows it's one of those trucks, but, and that's, that's what I love doing. I like making people scratch their head and, come back three or four different times. And so and say, man, I didn't even notice that until this time, you know, this is my fourth time coming back to look at it. You know, we've, we've kind of become known for taking a lesser desirable vehicle and making it, making it cool, you know, which is what I love to do. Yeah. I, I say that as we're building a 61 Impala, uh, bubble top car and we've cut it into a bazillion pieces and, changing everything about it but when we're finished with it it's it's still going to look like a 61 impala it's just believe it or not there's some things on a 61 impala that i could point out to you and you and you probably have never noticed it 
and you'll notice it. And then from now on, you'll look at that part of that car and go, man, why did they do that like that? <laughs> well, I mean, 61 Impala is a pretty good looking car to start with. So maybe you should try to make that one ugly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. that kind of uh, I ain't gonna know. I'm gonna keep my mouth shut. Say, so not only do we make, already, not only do we make ugly cars look good, we can make good looking cars ugly. <laughs> I I got in a little bit of trouble for making some comments that seem I uh, better keep my mouth shut. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh Lord. You know, I think I think the '61 needs some fins on the fenders. You know, the front. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll put we'll put '59 Cadillac fins on the front fenders. There you go. There you go. And then we can take like um, what was it the the 2000 Cadillac that had the long skinny taillights? You know, mm. and, and oh, a, yeah. And a, Oh yeah, everybody put them in their Chevrolet trucks, you know. <laughs> we, yep. we can we can incorporate those into being um LED headlights, you know, in the fins of the 60 fin or 59 fin. There we go. Man, I, I'm thinking really ob obtuse now. We could put some gurney bubbles in the top of the bubble top and have a double <laughs> bubble top. Dude, even better. Carmen at AM Hot Rod Glass is like my sister. We can have them. We can have her make them out of acrylic. Oh, like T tops, oh, gurney, gurney T tops, acrylic. Wait, wait. Now you're now you're just starting to talk like um, you're going to try to be like George Barris and uh, destroy Barris. something like the yeah, Lincoln Futura and turn it into the Batmobile. I mean, that was just destroyed the Lincoln Futura. Yeah. Come what what was that show that was on TV for a little while? Pitbull and Lipu. Come on, Derek. Derek, you know if we call it art, they can't make fun of it. That makes it off limits. <laughs> uh, good point. Good point. <laughs> oh Lord. Well, well, it sounds like uh, Tony's going to be talking to Will about a build here in the near future. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I think it's been a, we're about at that hour point, so I'm going to go ahead and say right now I'm going to do a closing, and I don't know if we'll chat after the show. Maybe I'll have to go back and move this closing. <laughs> we're just, we were we were just we're getting just warmed getting, up. Okay, let's keep, let's keep going. <laughs> no, it's, nah. it's fine. Nah. It's cool. <laughs> I, I don't know what Tony's schedule is, and I know what mine is. I don't have anything to do, but it's... Uh, <laughs> But I think it was a good episode. I think some great business tips for in the beginning. I'm going to give Tony a moment here if he wants to plug any of his Facebook groups or any of that. I don't know if he really, now that he's talked to the three of us, he might be afraid and might send us somewhere else. You know, look up Zig Ziglar's page. <laughs> but you can plug anything you want there, Tony, just for our listeners and your website or whatever, uh, your book, and we'll see where we go from there. Well, I keep it simple. I, I, I keep the brand name consistent and I just direct everybody to my webpage is 365driven.com, 365driven.com. And you can find links to my, my best-selling book. You can find my podcast. You can find my blog. You can find all the links to my social media. I'm pretty active on Facebook and Instagram, but everything's in a nice little tidy package on one website. 
and our nice little tidy package one website should hopefully be up by January. I've been finally working on it and getting rid of the generic just Lipson one we have right now. But as I always say, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram. That's where we're most active. You know where to find Will, Derek, and me at nodrivinggloves@gmail.com. Like I said, I hope this was a good episode for everybody, a little bit different. But we promised we're going to start changing it up now that I've invested in some better gear. That's it for me this evening, guys. Talk to you later. I'm I'm off to start a, a side hustle YouTube channel. So. <laughs> <laughs> good. So, so you just quit no driving gloves. <laughs> <laughs> that was my resignation. <laughs> <laughs>